All right, good morning once again. Welcome to Hope and Anchor Church. Uh, just by a show of hands, how many here are wearing socks? Okay, I need to tell you, your socks are at risk right now because what I'm about to tell you might blow your socks off. So curl your toes, do whatever you need to do. You know how last week um, I told you we were done with the Law and Prophets series? Well, this week... I was running, listening to a sermon by Tim Keller, and he was preaching about, he's doing kind of a series, he was doing a series on the hard sayings of Jesus, and he's talking about Matthew chapter 7, verse uh, 6, I believe, and I'm listening to it, and it's like, oh, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, and I, I think I unintentionally skipped this when we worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Not intentionally, uh, had I known I was skipping it, I probably still would have skipped it because it's a hard saying and I don't know exactly what to do with it. But I've spent this week studying uh, and subsequently writing, but I've been listening to um, other uh, pastors, teachers, how they've handled this passage. I've read commentaries. I've spent time in the Word. I've considered the context. I've listened to the other things Jesus said. I mean, these are the things you have to do when you come to things that lack a footnote in Scripture. <laughs> this is one of those passages that you kind of wish, man, I wish Jesus would have like said this and then said, uh, for more, see the footnote. It had a little asterisk by it, but he doesn't. And so you're kind of left to uh, just viewing this saying of Jesus in context, kind of in the flow of what Jesus is teaching, and that can help kind of you understand what he's trying to say. Now, that being said, I feel like I'm biting off more than I can chew with this one. Uh, you may have a different perspective on it. You may have a red phone to God and like, you get this, you've talked to Jesus about it, great. Uh, let me know. But uh, I'm going to do my best to unpack this hard saying of Jesus. And this is a hard saying, not because it's so hard to accept. I think it, for most of us, it's a hard saying because it's hard to understand. But I think we're going to come away with maybe a refreshed, uh, freed sense of what it means to follow Jesus and be patient with others. So let's do that. Today's message is called Law and Prophets Bonus Track. Week 23, Skiing in Missouri. Skiing in Missouri. So uh, let's see. Jesus, uh, I'm trying to skip through what I was saying in my preamble here. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's hard to hear what Jesus says here, but we need to listen closely. Okay. Turning your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. Just get a running start at this. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6. And you remember this passage because we did talk about this. It's just this verse 6 that I accidentally skipped. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, Let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite! First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Okay, you remember that part, right? Verse 6. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls and then turn and attack you. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls and then turn and attack you. How many have read that verse before? How many of you would be just vulnerable, transparent enough to admit, I'm not sure what that means? 
That's a tough one. In your Bible might read, don't give with the sacred things to the dogs, don't give your pearls to swine, things like that. So, uh, When I was a teenager, uh, I was seriously in love with downhill skiing. Uh, I just was. I mean, you know how you are in a teenager, you give yourself fully to things. Well, downhill skiing, that was it for me. My youth group here in Missouri that I was a part of, we went on an annual ski trip to Colorado. And when I was like 14 or 15 years old, I went on my very first one. And in doing so, I found my passion. I loved skiing. I loved downhill skiing. I wasn't very good at skiing, but I loved it anyway. Uh, and then when I was 18, I switched to snowboarding and never looked back. But for those intervening years, I loved snow skiing. Anyone else with me? Like snow skiing, just like it's the cat's pajamas? Yeah, right. Each year, I could not wait to get back to the mountains. I could not wait to get back to the mountains and fling myself down her glistening flanks in uh, borrowed ski bibs and my coat from Sears. I mean, that was my life. Those, that was the week I lived for year-round. One day, I was at a garage sale with my mom uh, and uh, rummaging through the typical finds at a Midwestern garage sale, hair dryers, toasters, plates, old furniture, and VHS tapes. And suddenly, a ray of sunlight fell on a pair of K2 giant slalom skis there, propped against the wall for $10. $10. Now, these, this is like 1980s dollars, but still, 10 bucks. It's still a good deal on K2 giant slalom skis. These skis, they were far too long for me. They were far too long for me, and yes, they were designed for competitive downhill racing. Read, these were not for teens from Missouri who skied three to four days per year, okay? But still, <laughs> they beckoned me. Yes, they beguiled me. No ski poles or ski boots were included. It was just the skis. Just the skis in all of their beauty. Immediately, visions of me carving svelte curves down a groomed trail filled my head uh, as the garage sale tables, you wouldn't believe this, the garage sale tables dreamily parted as I was drawn toward these skis. Uh, these skis would be mine. Oh, yes, they would be mine. I had a part-time job, and my 1981 Mazda 626 didn't use much gas. So I was sure I could afford them. I could make them my very own. And that's what I did. I bought those skis. I bought those skis. I bought them. I caressed them. I kept them in bed with me for several years. <laughs> I didn't sleep with them, actually, because skis are real sharp and hard. But you get the idea. I loved these skis. And I kept them in my closet. Yet, in my closet, they stayed. Sadly, as time went by, I never actually used the K2 giant slalom skis. Why? Well, several reasons actually. While I could afford the skis, I couldn't afford the other stuff. I could never afford the boots or the poles. And when I went on ski trips, it was just cheaper and easier to rent, to rent ski boots and poles and skis. And I lived in Missouri. Now you might be saying, well, actually, in the 80s, there was a ski area just north of town called Snow Bluff, and there was. But snow, the snow in Snow Bluff was a little bit of a misnomer. It was mostly ice. That place was really, really rough and dangerous. But anyway, Snow Bluff, it was kind of bad. But here's the thing. As much as I desired to be a ski bum, 
and spend every winter day on the slopes, I came to realize that I was not in a time or a place in my life to realize such things. As much as I wanted these things, as much as I desired these things, where I was, who I was, when I was, it just was not realistic. It was not going to happen. I was not in a time or place in my life to realize such things. I'm not sure whatever happened to those skis because I don't have them today. I don't know. It's kind of a mystery to me. But I, here's what I think happened. They probably ended up in another garage sale. Or they probably went to a thrift store. Those skis that captured my heart, that swept me away, eventually were given away or sold for another 10 bucks. Sad story. But the thing is, there's an important lesson to learn here, I think. There's an important lesson here that I think we all need to understand. There are good things in life that are not always for everyone at any given time. There are things that are in and of themselves very good things, but they're not for everybody in every situation. Sometimes we, or someone we know, we're not in a time or a place to receive a good thing for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we or someone we know is like a Missouri kid with Colorado skis. It's just not going to happen. And frankly, we shouldn't try to force those good things on ourselves or on others. We have to be wise, we have to be winsome, and we have to be patient sometimes. Because sometimes, even though it's a good thing, it might not be right for that situation or for that person. And that's hard to accept. Specifically for us as Christians, right? We have a good thing. We have the best thing. And we ought to be sharing it with everybody at any given opportunity, right? Well, maybe not. And that's why I think this is a hard saying. Christians should be wise. Christians should be patient in how and when we bring correction. Remember, this statement is in the context of Jesus talking about judging and, and correcting and pointing out things in people's lives, right? We should be wise and patient in how we bring correction, uh, even in how we share the gospel, because bringing the gospel is bringing correction sometimes, right? It's, it's, it's calling people to a place of honesty about themselves, a, a confession of repentance. So we have to be careful about when and how we bring correction and share the gospel because we have to understand that not every person is ready. Is that difficult to hear? But we have to look at Jesus' example. I mean, Jesus passed by lots of people and went to the one. Jesus, when asked questions specifically sometimes, would discern the heart or the attitude of the person with which he is interacting, and he wouldn't say anything. And it's like, Jesus, you're Jesus. You could like totally correct this person. You could totally work with this person, bring them to a place of just, you, know, you could just melt their face in, with repentance here. I mean, you could just call them to it, but he didn't. There's times where Jesus, his example is that he passes by what would seem like opportunities. But then other times he does share. It's like he's discerning something about the person with whom he's dealing. Not all situations are ripe to embrace truth, to engage repentance, or to enter into life change. I mean, you know that. You think about the people in your life. There's some people that are more ready to receive Christ. They're more ready to be corrected and to hear the truth of the gospel. And then there's some in your life that you would put on the list of like, nope, <laughs> not ready. If I did that, that would just go off like a bomb. And I know it, right? And this is hard for us 
This is hard, especially for those of us who were raised in the evangelical church, right? Those of us who were raised in the evangelical church, we were taught to ready, fire, aim when it comes to evangelism, right? We just fire and let God, you know, <laughs> we just do it and then let God sort it out kind of thing, right? We ready, fire, aim uh, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to speaking truth. This then brings us back to what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. And we must read Matthew chapter 7, verse 6 in context with um, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. And that's why we did that earlier. It's important to hear it included with what Jesus was saying. We must listen to what Jesus said about judging others. We must listen to what Jesus said about dealing with our own hang-ups, with our own sins first, before we set about dealing with other people's sins and other people's stuff, right? We have to start with the one person we actually can control, ourselves, right? When read in context, I believe these ideas flow together. And I think they're instructive to us. Remember, verse 1 and 2, Do not judge others and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. What's Jesus saying here? I think he's saying, be careful. Be very careful. Be very careful about judging others because how we judge others is how we will be judged by God. That should humble us to the core. How you judge others is how you will be judged by God. So check your pride, check your anger, check your self-righteousness before you open your mouth. In a lot of situations, silence is golden. It's not the right time or place for you to open your trap because you're not ready to do so. Okay, so verse 3 through 5. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, Oh, let me help you get rid of that speck in your own eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. <laughs> Sorry, I almost stopped. Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So here Jesus is calling us to do that deep work of self-assessment. See yourself as clearly as possible. Do the deep work of self-assessment and then repentance. You need to first step into Christ's light and deal with your own sin and your own similar behavior. Have you noticed this about humans, maybe about yourself, that that which bothers you most about others is oftentimes that which bothers you most about yourself? When someone holds up a mirror to you with their behavior or their attitude and it just rubs you the wrong way, you need to be quick to ask, why? Why does this bother me so badly? Well, it could be because it's going on in you too and you don't like it. So you take it out on this other person before you're willing to take it out on yourself. So check yourself before you wreck yourself. If you don't do that, if you're not willing to first stop always and say, what about me, Lord? How do I cleanse myself of this? How do I allow the Holy Spirit to have the run of the place and do the work it needs to do in me first before I open my big trap? If you don't do that, you are a what? A hypocrite. This is what Jesus says. You're an actor. You're play acting. You're a fake. You're a hypocrite. You are worse than the person you're trying to fix. Yuck, right? I mean, if you're a hypocrite trying to fix somebody, their flaws that are going on in you as well, man, you're worse off than they are. This teaching here from Jesus, remember, it isn't that we are to never judge. I mean, 
For a human to never make truth claims or, or, or discern between right and wrong is foolishness. And is to deny who we are as, as knowing humans, as the way God created us. The teaching here is that we're, isn't that we're never to judge or to seek justice or to call out destructive behavior. We just must be very careful because logs abound. We have log jams in our eyes. I mean, they're everywhere, and we have to be very careful. Really search our motives. Indeed, being a human, and especially being a Christian, it compels us to live a discerning kind of life. We are to live pursuing truth. We are to live avoiding error. We are to live in a way that calls people back to God. This is why Paul calls us ambassadors. We are sent out to reveal and represent the kingdom and to speak the very words of Christ when we say, come back to God. We are to do these things as Christ followers. So, we walk a fine line. A fine line of humility and of courage. A fine line that leads us to judge ourselves first before we judge anybody else. Now, verse 6. We get to verse 6. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls and then turn and attack you. <clears throat> so Jesus follows up all this teaching about judging and, and, and assessing yourself rightly. He follows it up with this, don't waste what is holy or don't waste the sacred on dogs or on the unholy, which some, some translations say dogs. And it says, don't throw your pearls to pigs. What in the world does Jesus mean here then? What does he mean? Who are these dogs and who are these pigs? Right? Who does Jesus have in mind? Who does Jesus have in mind when he says, hey, don't give the sacred things to the dogs. Don't give your gold to the dogs. Don't give the pearl, your pearls to the pigs. Who's he thinking of? What does it mean? Well, I think perhaps it's easier first to discuss what he does not mean. Okay, sometimes this is the easier way to back into this, right? Well, what does he not mean? What do we know that Jesus does not mean in this, uh, in this teaching? Well, it doesn't mean that you are above those who do not yet believe in Jesus. You're not in this place of superiority, better than those who do not possess the sacred things of God. You, get, you have been given through faith a gift, a gift. But don't use that gift to give rise to an air of superiority or of arrogance or of elitism over others who don't yet believe. What are these sacred things that have been given to you through faith in Jesus? Well, the gospel an awareness of the truth, the way of the living Lord, uh, an invitation into new life, a gift. Yes, carry it, guard it, prize it in your life. Jesus is referring to unbelievers <coughs> as dogs and pigs, but he doesn't refer to unbelievers as dogs and pigs in a pejorative sense. He's not using it specifically as a disparagement. He's not using it as a put-down of those who don't yet believe. And here's what I mean. Jesus is drawing a contrast. In this statement, Jesus, I believe, is drawing a contrast of degrees of understanding, a difference in priorities, and a difference in awareness levels. Those in Christ, here's what I mean, those in Christ, those who are Christ followers who have come into the knowledge of the Lord and of His truth, those in Christ have gone through <coughs> and are going through, to one degree or another, a process of awakening and transformation. To follow Christ is to be changed. 
There's a daily renewing, a daily growing and refining that happens because simply because you're following after Jesus. We are growing to see ourselves, <coughs> we're growing to see our sins and our worth more clearly than ever. Why? Because we are gaining through the work of the Holy Spirit those eyes to see and those ears to hear and that heart to understand what God desires for us, what God is saying to us. Therefore, those in Christ inevitably are called to think about things above. Okay, we're called beyond ourselves when we're following after Jesus. We are called to think of things above. We are concerned with more than our stomachs. <coughs> concerned with more than just our appetites and our desires. <coughs> but we have to understand, this is not license to dunk on those who have not yet seen the truth. Oh, man. Thanks. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> I saved this coughing fit for you. <laughs> I haven't had any of these all week. <coughs> Excuse me. So what I'm saying is that the, this awareness of this truth, this gift we've been given, can easily lead us to have a, a, an air of superiority that leads us to dunk on others who don't yet believe, who've, who haven't yet seen this truth. So dogs and pigs, we need to go back to the first century Near East to really hear then what Jesus is saying when he says, hey, dogs, don't, get, or don't give the sacred things to the dogs, don't give your pearls to the pigs. What's he talking about? Well, <coughs> the dogs of the first century were not like your dog at home. They weren't. What might have been, <coughs> been different about dogs in the first century? Help, you can answer while I cough. <coughs> They were scavengers, okay. Mostly strays. Mostly strays. Do people have pet dogs? Maybe, maybe working dogs. Uh, shepherds might have had some sort of dogs. But, but dogs in the first century, they were not typically pets like we have today. They were scavengers roaming the streets. They were undernourished and oftentimes vicious. You know, I mean, you know how you are when you're hungry, right? <laughs> dogs are like seriously hangry, right? Um, Often vicious. If you tried to pet a dog, or if you tried to grab one of these dogs and bring it into your home and make it your pet, you would quickly and painfully regret that decision. Really, they were terrible house guests. Uh, the dog would be terrified, and that dog would be out of control. You just didn't see dogs the same way uh, in that first century culture. Now, pigs, pigs were all domesticated. There were no wild pigs. There were no boars or warthogs running around in first century Near East, right? All the pigs that were there were domesticated. They were farmed. Uh, they were completely dependent on their owners, okay? As such, Pigs were only ever concerned with food. Only ever concerned with living for their next meal. What's the next thing you're going to give to me that I can put into my belly? That's all they thought about. That's all they cared about. They were only concerned with food. So, giving a pearl to a pig was silly, yes, but it was also dangerous. Why? Because... Pigs only think with their stomach. They can only expect food. They live completely guided by their appetites. And you might see the parallel here. Presented with a pearl, a pig will try to eat it. 
They can't interpret it as anything else but food. So they'll try to eat the pearl and they will choke on it or they will bite it and injure themselves or they will frustrate themselves, get angry, they'll spit it out, they'll turn on you and trample it in the ground as they tear you to pieces. <coughs> so don't give your pearls to pigs, right? So, we who have been given the holy things of God, the sacred things of God, the gospel, we must be sensitive to situations and the prevailing concerns of those we encounter. We, more than others, we must be sympathetic to starting points. I mean, we could all agree that God, can only, I mean, we saw this with Jesus' ministry, He only started where someone was. He didn't wait for someone to come to a level of enlightenment or beha moral behavior before he interacted with them, right? Woman at the well, uh, whoever. <coughs> he met them where they were. So we too must be sympathetic to those starting points. We shouldn't expect to call someone from the bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs all the way to the top rung of self-actualization in one big jump, right? That'd be silly in other areas of life, but it's especially silly in the area of following after Jesus of spiritual enlightenment. You don't go from safety and security needs to self-actualization needs in one moment. So you didn't do that, so stop expecting it. Stop expecting such spiritual acrobatics from others. It's hard. It's unrealistic. It's often insensitive and unkind to expect one who is barely scraping by to be comforted by the finer points of our theology, right? I mean, we want to tell people, and people need to understand what it means, uh, what salvation means, what justification means, what sanctification means, but if someone's really scraping by, starving, what's that going to do for them? It reminds me of what James says. It's like, what good is it to say, hey, someone comes to you hungry, and you're like, oh, be warm and be well fed. Lord bless you. And you don't actually help them? You're really missing the point. You're missing the point of the gospel as it's expressed in the world around us. So, likewise, uh, we must be wise and we must be patient in sharing the gospel and bringing correction uh, with those who have been domesticated uh, in the 21st century Western cultural beliefs and ideologies that surround us. That, the, the, the cultural beliefs and the ideologies that people swim in daily, we must be wise and patient as we carry the gospel into those situations among those who've been domesticated. Someone being fed daily by secularism, by progressivism, or by nationalism, they may find it impossible to see beyond their felt needs. They may find it impossible to hear beyond their echo chamber in which they exist. Uh, impossible to consider anything beyond their appetites, beyond their inclinations, their ideologies, and their politics because they're not just ingrained, they're venerated. In this day and age, the things you believe, the things that you hold to be true, they have become sacred. In our time, in fact, finding your authentic self Finding your authentic self is the highest virtue. That is the one creed by which all must live. You must pursue the discovery of your authentic self. We have deified, we have made holy the internal quest to identify who you are by how you feel. Your self-perception is, is, is not to be challenged. 
Why would anyone feel like they have the right to interrupt your quest, your quest of self-discovery, your self-perception of your sexuality, of your gender, of your politics, of your grievances that inform who you are? Those are sacrosanct. And this, guys, is a form of thinking with your stomachs. The thinking with your stomachs of giving ultimate influence to your appetites and to your desires, being unconcerned and unaware and then suspicious of things that are beyond your sphere of experience or incongruent with your preferences. We live in a very self-contained world now. Everything you need to become who you truly are resides within you. And so to challenge that is dangerous and difficult. By its broken systems of living and thinking, our culture is busy creating dogs and busy domesticating pigs every day, reinforcing daily these base patterns and these habits. I mean, there was a time where you were taught to be suspicious of your, uh, your, your desires, of your habits, of the things that you naturally wanted to do. You were taught to critique those things, but now we've come <laughs> to the other side of the planet and it's just like, hey, actually, those are the truest things about you. Don't you question those and you don't allow anybody else to question those. Those are sacred. So when we go out to reveal and represent Christ and His kingdom, when we go out uh, and, we, have and we, we see that there's sin to be corrected, we must be aware and we must be wise as we share because... It's not always appropriate in a given situation. And it's hard to hold your fire, but sometimes we need to hold our fire. Because of their living situation, dogs are unable to appreciate gold. And because of the prevailing worldview, the situation in which they live, pigs never know what to do with pearls. They never do. It's not, nothing's wrong with you. A pig doesn't know what to do with a pearl. A dog doesn't know what to do with sacred things. No one is blessed then when we force people into spiritual conversations. No one is blessed then when we try to manipulatively close the deal on getting people to behave. We try to close the deal on getting people to believe. More times when we realize trying to get dogs to read the Bible or feeding the pearl of great price to pigs, it's a fool's errand. It's a fool's errand in the end. I mean, we may feel, and I've fallen into this thinking, I mean, become a pastor and, and see what it feels like. Holy smokes. We may feel like we're being obedient when we are always sharing our faith and always speaking the truth at all costs. But in the end, we're often being, just being insensitive. And we're driven by pride and arrogance and need for validation that I'm doing my job or you're doing your job as a Christian. Our good intentions can end up battling against the church's witness. Our good intentions can end up battling against our testimony in the world. So what should we do? How do we be faithful then? We don't want to make the equal and opposite error of never sharing the truth, never sharing the gospel, never calling out sin, never calling people we love to correction of behavior, of lifestyle, of choices they're making that are destructive. Right? We don't want to end up cheerleading people on, the way to, on their way to hell. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's pretty evil. 
We can call that loving someone, but in the end, we're just championing like, yeah, you've got this, you go, you do you, as they're flinging themselves into the abyss. Like, that's not love, that's hate, you know? It's like, that's evil. So how do we avoid that error, too? What do we do? How do we live this out? Well, the best guidance I can find is in Colossians 4. The Apostle Paul. We must be prayerful, we must be present, and we must be patient in sharing our faith in Jesus. We must be prayerful, present, and patient in sharing our faith in Jesus, in calling people back to God. We should take our cue from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4. We intentionally attend. We eagerly look for and we wait for doors of opportunity to open. God will place people in front of you. God will bring people into your life and you will sense if you're paying attention, if you're, if you're uh, uh, in tune with the Spirit, you will know that this is an opportunity. This is an open door for me to share. This is an open door for me to speak truth, to even uh, bring judgment here in the biblical Jesus-centered kind of way. Look at Colossians 4. Uh, let's read verses 4 through uh, Colossians 4 verses 2 through 6. And listen closely here. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. I'll read this again. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities. Your Bible might say doors of opportunity to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Man, two words jump out at me there. Gracious and attractive. Is our Christian witness gracious and attractive? I think oftentimes it's not. We're brash. We're abrasive. We're aggressive. We want to force things on people, and they're not ready for it. And what does it mean to be gracious and attractive in our witness and in our words? What's going on with Paul here in this passage? You might know where he's writing. What's going on in his life as he writes the letter to the Colossian believers? Paul's in prison. He's in prison. He's in chains. He is chained to the wall at times, and he's chained to a guard at other times. And this is Paul. I mean, Paul is like his calling card is like to share the gospel. I mean, tell people what they're doing wrong. You know, I mean, that's what Paul does, right? But here Paul is saying, hey, I want to be patient. I want to be patient and I want to wait. I want to wait for appropriate God-given times to effectively share the gospel. I want to be intent on living graciously and attentively in the meantime. I want to be always ready. I want to always be watching and waiting. Paul is ready in and out of season to give the reason for the hope he has in Jesus. He knows that every situation is pregnant with potential. God may open a door at any given moment for your, you to share, to speak, and yours is to be ready. To be ready. Surely there were spiritual dogs and pigs around Paul, right? I'm not sure where he's writing the Colossian letter. I think it might have been Rome. Uh, I'd have to look this up. But anyway, I know that they weren't Jewish people around him. 
He was around Gentiles, pagans, people from other cultures. He, those that Jesus would have been maybe speaking about when he said dogs and pigs. There were spiritual dogs and pigs all around Paul. And he knew that in his circumstances, to indiscriminately preach the gospel in a scattershot fashion would have likely been counterproductive, but even more so, dangerous. Right? If he was just like always just firing away, firing away, firing away, a lot of it would have been wasted, and it might have brought really negative consequences unnecessarily. So Paul understood that patience and forbearance were necessary. Patience and forbearance. And the ability to be faithful and wise in that difficult situation. So, here I think is our takeaway. Our takeaway for us is this. Be prepared. Be prepared. Be aware. Pray often. Judge yourself first. Speak the truth in love. And always be ready to give a right response to everyone when the time comes. Is that fair? I mean, this, you might agree, this is a tough passage, and I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if I covered all the bases there. But I think we need to listen to Jesus, and we need to try to uh, take what He says in this whole passage, take it in context, and try to incorporate that into our lives. And where we still don't have clarity, where we may not have agreement, let's lift this to the Lord and say, God, through Your Holy Spirit, help me see this. Help me live graciously and attractively, motivated by the truth, animated by the gospel, so that people, yeah, are, are drawn to me. That doors fling open before me, and I get to just speak love and truth into people's lives. Yes, Lord. But also give me the patience and the forbearance, the gentleness to say, hey, you know what? Now's maybe not the time. Maybe it's not the time, but a time will come. And when it does, I want to be ready. So let's go to the Lord together. Father, we've heard Jesus' words here, and it's a tough one. It's, it's challenging. It's hard to understand, but it's also, once we do gain some understanding, it's hard to accept because for a variety of reasons, uh, some of us don't like confrontation. Some of us would much prefer just to affirm and, and, and celebrate people as they are, where they are, never speaking uh, any kind of truth, uh, never calling them to a different sort of living, away from destructive behaviors or habits. Uh, and then others of us just love to be, uh, uh, have a mouth like a machine gun. We just love to shoot people down with the truth all the time. We love to blanket it in gospel-sounding words that make it seem like we're being faithful or being an effective witness or being evangelistic, but sometimes our attitudes and our motives are way off, are way off base. So God, there's much work that could be done here. I think this message, what Jesus is saying to us, could really uh, be dealt with at many different levels by each person here. So I pray that uh, right now your Holy Spirit would come, work amongst us, Speak to us. I mean, some, some people might be sitting here right now disagreeing with what I said and just eager to correct me. And that's fine, that's fine. But I pray that this would be an object lesson then. A time to learn, a time to have a softening of our hearts. God, we get so wrapped up, we get so enthralled with our theology sometimes that we just can't see people anymore. And, and the gospel becomes a, a calling card rather than um, that which saved us and set us free that which has uh, drawn us into a life of hope and of joy. So God, may we be patient enough and mature enough to sit with these difficult sayings and just ask you, what does this mean? 
What lessons ought I learn from this today? Lord, we lift this. We lift our whole lives up to you, God. Search us and know us. Make us wise. Make us gentle. That we might, like Paul, when the opportunities are given, when those doors open, that we might speak with truth, we might speak with love, and we might live a life that is gracious and attractive for your glory and for the good of those you bring into our lives. God, we're attentive when we're listening. Lord, would you speak to us, we pray? We're going to worship a bit more, and this is a chance to sit with the Lord and, and probe this question. Ask the Lord. Invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Maybe there's situations, circumstances, encounters, experiences you've had that have really brought this to the forefront of your mind, and maybe you feel uncomfortable, like, man, I, I don't think I did this right, or I think I'm too timid. I don't seize doors of opportunity when they do come. Or maybe you sense some arrogance and pride. A desire to just correct people's thinking or behavior so that it's more palatable to you. <laughs> Man, we got a lot of work to do here. We got to allow the Holy Spirit to, to do some healing in us. And so while we sing, I pray that uh, you would do that. Just sit with the Lord. Make the most of this opportunity.